Sometimes we feel paralyzed by fear and body hatred. In order to feel better about ourselves and live the life we really want to manifest, we have to own up to our difficult feelings and self-sabotaging thoughts and behaviors. We all enter this world naked, and now it's time to feel good naked. No matter what your body size or your life circumstances, this is Feel Good Naked Radio, and your host is Lar Redmond. On this program, Lar will help you become more embodied, self-empowered, and mindful to take charge of whom you really are and to live the life you deserve to live. Now, here's your host, Laura Redmond. Hello and welcome back to Feel Good Naked Radio. I am your host, Laura Redmond. And today, I'm going to be in the hot seat. I got a bunch of wonderful emails from you guys, a lot of requests to put myself in the position of being interviewed and to switch roles, turn the microphone around. And I thought about it for a while, and I I realized that's a great idea. A lot of you have no idea what my backstory is and how I got into this world of helping others become more empowered and embodied. And then I had to figure out, oh, man, who who would I love to have interview me? Um, And I thought about all sorts of people that have traveled through my life, And I had no question when I realized my number one pick was Danielle Claro, and I was able to get her to give me this hour to interview me. Uh, Danielle Claro is a writer and editor with deep experience in the wellness industry. She is the co-author of New York Times bestseller called The New Health Rules and was deeply or was deputy, I'm reading this, Danny, deputy editor of Real Simple magazine. So deputy editor of Real Simple Magazine and the co-author of The New Health Rules. She's also a former professional dancer and most importantly, she's my friend. So Danny, hi. Hi, I'm so honored <laughs> to be here. This is an awesome responsibility and I mean awesome in the dictionary definition. I'm very honored. I messed up oh. your bio because I, I was a little nervous. I'm not used you know to the microphone being turned <laughs> on me. Don't worry about it. I'm going to prompt you from here on in, and I'm going to do a little bit of a formal intro for you, too, if you don't mind, um, and then we'll get, then we'll get loose. Okay. Laura Redmond is an author, TV personality, international radio host, and confidence coach practicing in Portland, Oregon. Laura's work is dedicated to helping people realize their true potential, through attention to mind, body, and spirit. Her trademark brand, Feel Good Naked, has been featured on Oprah and KATU-TV, and she's the host of this podcast on Voice America Radio, where she connects with a rich community of authors, thinkers, and healers. Welcome to your show, Laura. <laughs> Thank you, Danny. That was really fun to listen to. Thank you. <laughs> You've done a lot. You're quite accomplished. Mm. I rarely think of that as my, um, I don't think of myself that way, but when I heard you read that, I felt very um, honored to have lived the life I've lived so far. I wonder if we should all read our bios every morning. What do you think? <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the new mantra, read your bio. Read yeah. your bio. <laughs> so I was going to but, ask you what your mantra is, if you have a mantra. I do. I have a mantra, and it is, I am loving, I am love. That's beautiful. That's a good um, 
that's a good way into my first question, which I've stolen from Krista Tippett, and on being, um, Krista always asks people, first off, about the spiritual life uh, from their childhood, whether there was one or wasn't one. It's just a really interesting thing to dig into, and I wondered if you would tell us about that in your own life. Ah, it's such a great question, and I'm such a beautiful fan of Krista Tippett. (laughs) Um, And I think that what comes up for me when you ask me that is that I was raised in a religious home in terms of going to church. I was told from the minute I can remember that I would be going to church every Sunday, and we would go, my mother, my two sisters, myself, my grandmother— Interesting, the men often got out of going. Um, I wondered about that later because that was just interesting to me that we'd be sitting in the pew and it was the female, the matriarch side of my family. And I often did not want to be there um, as most little people feel in a church where you're silent and you're sitting and you're listening for an hour. But I do look back on that as a chance to be aware of the inner voice. And I think as that little person, I probably sat there the whole hour with great information coursing through me, which began to become that internal self. And I definitely tapped into the memory of that recently when somebody was asking if I had had any religion in my childhood. I did not stay with religion. I was in a very religious high school, a boarding school in Raleigh, North Carolina called St. Mary's. It was Episcopal and we went to church at school every Wednesday night and every Sunday. And then when I went to college at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, I stopped going to church. I stopped that that habit. But the other thing that comes up for me, having grown up in New Orleans, Louisiana, is the soulful, spiritual experience of music. And Mm -hmm. I, I think that infused me probably more than the religion because, or the um, traditional religion, because music awakened me, and and it awakened me at a level that I had never experienced until I could feel it and note it. And in the French Quarter of New Orleans, you know, we'd go as a family to dinner or lunch in the French Quarter, and everywhere you'd turn, there was music, live music and tap dancing and this beautiful sense of celebration of life and living through the spirit. So I I can't answer that question without mentioning music as a great spiritual guide. Music is still a big part of your spiritual practice in terms of music and movement and the way those connect. Yeah, you know, I started teaching this movement program in Portland, Oregon in 2009. I had taken a 10-year break from teaching movement, um, and we must go back to when you and I met in the movement world of New York City. But mm-hmm. when I got back into teaching, it's it's interesting how intention works because I had written down on a post-it probably three years before I started teaching again. And on the post-it, which I found when I moved two years ago, I had put it in a box, the post-it said, you two, the Rolling Stones, Bonnie mm-hmm. Raitt, Joan Armatrading, movement. And <laughs> and then I started this program called Stretch Appeal, and it became mostly driven by the music. And I still teach this. 
amazing practice three times a week in Portland. And I make a playlist before I teach every single time I teach so that the music is present and current and relative to my alignment. And then I share it. And there's no doubt that that music awakens so many of us on that floor as music does. And and it is a spiritual experience to feel music. I think it's one of the great ways to feel whatever it is you're feeling. And I think so many people don't feel in a lot of deep ways. And music will give you that gateway to feeling. And to feel it together in a setting like that. I was lucky enough to have the chance to take your class recently. And a lot of a lot of the power of that is is everybody feeling that music and that movement together. Exactly. It's the most, um, I would say it is the most supportive community. We share the experience and often new people will come into the program and they will take the class and then at the end they come to say thank you and they start weeping and they will say, I don't know why I'm crying. I'm I'm so sorry. And I always say, oh, no, let it flow. Those tears needed to come out. And that's just a wonderful experience to cry and to let them out. And, and that is interesting to me how people will often cry and they have no plan or expectation to do so. But it is another way to get out of your body that which is within your body. And I think getting into the idea of embodiment, which motivated me to start this podcast. Embodiment is not just physical, and it is largely emotional. And so crying or allowing tears to flow in the movement practice is another way to give your emotions permission to be there and to let them out, to let them flow. So I encourage crying if that's what happens to someone organically while there. Well, since we're talking about the movement practice... Um, maybe now is a good time for you to talk us through the arc of the arc of your career, the arc of your path, because a lot of that, a lot of where you are today, started with with movement. Mm, definitely, definitely, and and I was a very fat, chubby, um, judged, visual child. So I grew up in this environment with two exquisitely beautiful sisters. And a mother that was so beautiful that people would stop just to speak to her. And um, when I was born, I was clearly not in the visual category that they were in. And so early on, I felt very aware that people were not comfortable with how I looked. They were not comfortable with how my body looked. And so I was shut down physically and, and ashamed of my freckles and red hair and white skin, um, and uh, not at all active, uh, more so I would say I was actively eating, but I was not actively moving. And my mother ended up um, getting just hammered with a brutal cancer, a cancer that was um, unknown in the world. She was the 11th person in the world to have this cancer. It showed up in her upper thigh uh, at first. It was the first tumor. And I was 12 when she was first diagnosed, and um, or 11 actually, and she died when I was 16. The cancer was very aggressive. She did have about a four-year window where where she was not in surgery or recovery, but 
the last, oh, I would say six months of her life were tragic and debilitating. And I was home with her alone um, the day that that she fell to the ground uh, and had become paralyzed by the radiation treatment that was used to try to figure out how to manage these tumors that were all around her spine at that point. And they didn't understand the damage of radiation. So you never forget trauma and tragedy and her scream and the ambulance. And and from that point on, it was watching her body uh, just disappear in front of my eyes. I think I think when she when she died, she was probably 65 pounds, and this was a woman who was so beautiful, as I said, and vibrant, and and um, so I had this relationship with what it means to be in your body. Um, what what does that mean, and what does it mean when you lose full control of your body? At the same time that was happening, I was in the summer of my 10th grade year, and thankfully I had gotten into this renowned boarding school, uh, which my mother, I think, waited to ensure that I was accepted before dying, because I really had nowhere else to kind of go. It was a homeless experience at the same time. It was a loss of mother. And I went to this boarding school as an 11th grader in high school, still large and heavy and fat and somewhat... um, freaked out about the way I looked. And I had this wonderful roommate named Hamer, and Hamer was a jogger. And this was 1978, so there weren't a lot of joggers. It was not common to see people on the street running, um, nor was the clothing equipped for such. So she, she happened to be this jogger who had running clothes, and they were neon, and they resisted <laughs> water and rain. And... <laughs> It's just so interesting to reflect because there I would be and I'd watch her getting ready in this tiny little boarding school room to go jog. And she was such a, she is such a positive human being. And she'd say, come with me, come with me. And I'd say, oh God, no, I can't, I don't run. I don't, I don't know. And I wouldn't. But then (laughs) around May of our junior year in high school, I thought, I'm going to go. I got to figure this out because she was so, her endorphins were screaming when she'd get back and she'd be in such a good mood. And I thought, I got to, I got to figure this out and try it. (laughs) And God bless Hamer because she took me out there and I probably did a quarter of a mile. Um, Needless to say, I became a slow and consistent jogger. And as I would jog, Danny, I just felt this exquisite feeling. It was as if I had lifted the depression, the darkness, the solitude of self into a an energetic pattern that became very addictive. So I ran mm. every day. And by the time I got to Chapel Hill as a freshman in college, this was right at the point that the exercise business was happening in the culture. So one of these women on my dorm hall uh, on the hall said, come with me, I'm going to this class. And I went to my very first exercise class where there was music and movement and dance. And I loved it. I was immediately thrilled to have found something that even was possible to do like this. And I went every single day, every single day, every single day. I dreamed of working there. 
and my boss, Elizabeth Shackelford, was aware of my commitment. And when I approached her to say, can I do anything here? I'll clean toilets, I'll sweep, I'll work the desk. She said, yeah, I'll, I'll give you a job at the desk where we checked clients in. And this was at a time where Michael Jordan and Lawrence Taylor were at my college and they heard about this exercise studio. So I was checking <laughs> And these like exquisite <laughs> athletes that were so physically embodied and it was riveting. And so I knew that if there was a business I could be in, it would be fitness and I wanted it so much. So I started working for Elizabeth. I worked at the desk and I became a teacher Um At the same time, my body was starting to really transform, but most of all, I felt so good. And then I thought, okay, where does one go to work in the fitness industry? And I realized it was Los Angeles or New York City. And my sisters had relocated oddly and beautifully and thankfully to New York City, and I'd go visit them, and I'd just start going to exercise classes because they were booming. This was 1970. 9, 80, 81, 82, 83, when it all started. And by 83 in New York, I found the place that made my heart swell. And it was called Body Design by Gilda. And Gilda Mm -hmm. had uh, one studio at that time on 57th and Madison. And by my senior year in college, I love this, the bravado, I thought I heard, and there was a little sign in the ladies' room that said, audition you know, next week at, I don't know what time. And I went to the audition as if I lived there and could take the job. <laughs> and I went to and the you audition. Were still, and you were still living, um, were, you, were you still in school then? Yes, I was still at Chapel Hill. I was a senior <laughs> at this point. I would have th- been really happy not to be in school and just to be working there. But I love that I went to this audition and I didn't even live in New York. And they put a number on your your leotard. And this audition probably had 55, 60 people. It was packed. It was like a... Um, you know, like just a cattle every- call for a, yeah, for a yeah, Broadway yeah. show. Was, I remember, yeah. And the first round, they were like, my number, I was I was still there, you know. And, and by the end, um, I got taken into a little room, and Tina DeLimp, the queen boss of the whole place, sat me down and said, we really love your energy, and you have a lot to offer. When can you start? <laughs> and I said, well... I actually am in college in North Carolina. And she was like, oh, why are you here? And I said, because I want to work here. And she said, okay, well, what's the story? And I said, I will be graduating in May unless you want me to start now, and then I'll just drop out. And (laughs) I'm so grateful to Tina DeLemp because she said to me, I have a deal to make with you. And I said, what is it? And she said, I want you to be an assistant manager. I'm opening up. I think you have a really good business sense. And I'm opening up a studio on the Upper West Side in July. And I will hire you to be the assistant manager and to teach at that studio, but only if you graduate from college. And I said, you got a deal. And I never had a piece of paper to confirm this agreement. Like there was nothing like a contract. But I looked at her at the end of this meeting and I said, how can I trust this? And she said, you can trust this. And she shook my hand. 
And I started on July 7th, 1984 at the Upper West Side. (laughs) Gilda's studio is the assistant manager. And I went through that horrific training you went through, too, that was so important. But it was demanding, right? It was. It really was. It really was. I was proud of it, ultimately, because I felt like we were the best trained teachers around. We were. We were. It was serious. I've told people about this. I mean, it was three weeks of learning and studying and moving and presenting, and then eventually you'd you'd get on the schedule. When did you audition? What year? I can't. You know what? I I have to do the math. Um, Maybe it was 85. It was only, I think it was only about a year, a year later, a year after you were there, maybe even less, but it was 57th Street where I, uh, that's where I trained with Tracy Rawls, Mm -hmm. right? And Karen Leferlita. And, um, and a team of people that it didn't end up staying. You know, you you had your little group, and then it was sort of look to your left, look to your right, and you were the only one left after a little while, you know? Mm. Because once you started teaching, it was pretty demanding. Yes. Yeah. And what a and group. And not everybody had it. Yeah. Oh, we but had it was, such a magical group of people. It was pretty amazing. I think it was pretty amazing. And I don't know if you felt this way when we were there, but I really felt... Like we were changing lives, like we were having impact on people. People would come up to us all the time after class in tears, and they had just discovered exercise through through the studio where we worked, and discovered a part of themselves that that, that was asleep or just quiet. And it was so gratifying. I found it really moving, profoundly moving, profoundly powerful, and moving. And yes, we were changing lives. And that is priceless. And that in is such priceless. A, yeah, in a sort of one life at a wait time. I have so many questions for you. I'm, I'm just going to jump around so that we can cover some of the things I want to make sure we get to. Um, I, wanna, I wondered if you would talk about your coaching practice a little bit for us. Yes, yes. So um, at the studio where we both worked, I started to get asked by clients to work with them privately. People wanted to work one-on-one with me, and my individual practice began with people probably late 80s. And I started to understand when I was working with people privately that you could not focus on the body without honoring the mind and the spirit, the soul and the emotions. And as I became very popular as a private trainer to these different individuals, it was at the same time that I was connecting the dots with the alignment of spirit, mind, and heart, and body. And I began really figuring out the beginning of a book idea, which was to create steps for people that I constantly was teaching them within these private practice sessions. At the same time, I was being... Uh, looked at by ESPN to go on television with Corey Everson, Everson, um, never quite sure how to say her last name. And I got that gig. And so I was in television. I was figuring out this mind-body-spirit connection. I was working with individuals and teaching large groups. And all of that began to make so much sense to me that my coaching practice was built and born out of that seed. And as I became more public, I used the information to help very large groups of people through television while still building this practice with individuals. And often when I would work with people one-on-one, we would spend the whole time 
figuring out where they were shut down physically, where their lives weren't making sense. And then the coaching practice that I built then became confidence coaching, because that's really at the kernel for everybody is who are you? What do you want? And what's stopping you from getting there? And so that began a incredible part of my business. It's thriving today. It's so important to me. And then my book came out in 2001 called Feel Good Naked, which you were so helpful with as an editor and helping get my book to Dupree Miller in Dallas, the agent that represented it. And from there, it's just been this incredible universe of helping people figure out what it will take for them to be happy, embodied, aligned, and to create the life they really want to create. And I'm, I'm able to guide people in a way that's intuitive with 30 years of experience. So it's been an incredible part of my life and continues to be. You, uh, you inspire so many people. You give so much. And I have to know what inspires you, what helps you evolve and change, and what fuels you you? What refeeds you? Oh, that's such a good question. I'm a deep, deep studier. I'm, I'm often buried in books and philosophies and theories. And so I'm a student of what I teach, but I'm a very serious student. <laughs> so I practice what I preach And as it has changed my life so profoundly, I understand it from a philosophical studied place. So studying, meditating, and spending a lot of time alone, because the only way that I can do the work that I do is to regenerate my soul self and to constantly have something to offer through what I know and what I learn. And my meditation practice, which began in 2010, has infused my life so, so profoundly. And I would say currently that is that spiritual understanding that has altered everything. Do you meditate every day? Every day I try to meditate. If I don't get to it, which is not not often, I still will create five minutes within my day to check in and to do the mantra breath, the deep breath. And in a weird way, and and I want to hear what you think of this because I know you're a devout meditator, I'm often feeling as if I'm always meditating. I mean, now there's almost a sense, and my guru shared this with me back in 2012, and it's true. He said, when you do this practice every day, you won't know the difference between when you're doing it and when you're not, but you still have to mm-hmm. do it every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that doesn't give you a it pass. <gasps> no, but, but it becomes, it does become internalized. I was just this morning trying to convince uh, someone, a, a friend uh, who was on the phone ranting about someone, ranting with anger, and I ultimately sent him an email about learning to meditate, um, that this is a tool that you keep in your back pocket, which is a, which is a good way. Um, it's one way to think about it, but also it does become part of you and your 
whatever it is, I'm not sure scientifically what it is, if, it, if it's your nervous system, something in you knows to flip that switch when you need it, and you can feel, you can feel the meditation in your daily life. I definitely have that experience. And you meditate twice a day, is that correct still? I, you know, I don't. I should, though. I should because I learned TM, Transcendental Meditation, and that's meant to be done twice a day. Um, and I, I do when I can. Um, actually, when I was commuting, I did because there, there are nice, quiet cars on the train here where I live, and it's, it's a really wonderful place to meditate. But um, I do it once a day usually, and I certainly feel, feel it if I do it twice. But it's just one of those things. People ask me about it all the time. And the best way to describe it, I think, is that I know something will change if I sit down and meditate. I just don't know what. Yeah. Um, but sometimes I, you know, I'll use it as a tool to get me through something. Um, that was another thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, I wanted to ask you about bad days, you know, like how do you take care of yourself, even you who radiate so much positivity and positive energy, um, you know, one thing I've learned with having all these decades, having spent all these decades with myself is how to manage myself emotionally, psychologically, and sometimes I'll, I'll sit down to meditate when I'm feeling just crummy, and like I said, I know something will move. It may not, it may not get me to any sense of elation or euphoria or gratitude or where I, where I hope I am, but it does change things. And I wondered... You're, if you're having a bad day, what do you do? Do you ever lean into it? Do you just let yourself feel bad? Do you right away take care of yourself? Mm, no, and, how do you, and how do you take care of yourself? You know, I honor I honor bad days because it's what they are. I mean, I, I think what I've learned more than anything is that to be present, to be mindful, to be aligned is to accept whatever is. And mm. so, I mean, I had... Two, uh, I'm going to say I had three years where I cried, sobbed. I would call it being down on my knees on the floor um, with not a lot of breaks. My breaks would have been my movement and my work. But there was such a dark period that I had to go through to get to the light, to be here now. And what it taught me is that if I don't deny darkness, if I don't deny difficulty and I'm and I'm and I'm honest about it, then I become able to be with it, which then automatically moves it to something else. It is a constant changing frequency that we all live in and the worst thing one can do is to stuff, shut down, or push away that which might be difficult because difficulty really honestly difficulty has been my best teacher and it's so hard when you're in it you just don't think it's ever going to end and when it is a three-year darkness it it really does feel like it's never going to end but I learned in those three years to allow it accept it and be authentic about it. And I think that's what taught me vulnerability because I was so scared to be vulnerable and I didn't even know that until I became utterly vulnerable. And I'm so thankful for vulnerability. And and that is where I bow down to that difficulty. So difficult days happen. They happen um, in different volume levels, but when I have one and I feel one and I'm in one, I accept it. 
I, I allow it and I ask it what's there to teach me. Well, it's really beautiful. That's such a nice way to relate to it. Yeah, instead of avoiding it. Because avoiding it, this is the thing, if you avoid it, it gains momentum. It's like a tornado. It becomes much bigger, much more fierce, um, overwhelming, dominating. And and if you, it, if you choose denial, denial being an avoidance of it, it only gets larger and bigger and more f- debilitating. So you have to just walk through the fire sometimes, and it's not easy, but there's great value. Uh, I, I, I'm just catching on something that you said a minute ago about vulnerability and strength. And um, when I first met you, we were in our early 20s, and you were possibly the most adult peer I knew. You had it so together. You seemed, first of all, you knew what your calling was, but you also, you ran this studio, helped run this studio, and you had a business mind. You were, um, you were living a healthy life. You were incredibly fit. You were happy um, and motivated. You were a really hard worker. Um, I think, I was thinking about you and thinking like, wow, I know a lot of that came from necessity and pain. Um, having to pull everything together and be very adult at a young age, but it also made me feel like you might have great advice for young people. I don't know if you um, have coaching clients. I know that you've that you've worked with high school kids. I'm just thinking now about people in their in their twenties and the world today. And uh, if you have any advice to share, mm, that's a great question. I love working with young people, and I. And I have clients that are as young as 12. Um, Mm. And probably, of course, my heartstring is most pulled to those that are in high school because I think young people today are really being tested and forced on a daily basis to figure out who they are and what they feel, and and the studies have proved so, so clearly that the technological addiction is taking them away from knowing the answers to what they feel and who they are. So, and yet everybody's got that phone and and that's not going to change. So I think that one of the greatest ways to meet young people today is to ask them to tell you who they are. What do you like? What do you feel? What's your opinion about because what I've noted is a lot of young people today have a lot to say and in a way I think they're going to change our world for the better because they do have more confidence in speaking about their opinion or taking a stand which is very liberating and hopeful to me but on an emotional spiritual level on an embodied level, I think the key is to take breaks from that technological identity and to be more aware of the spirit-soul connection. And, and I think that's, that's something that when they learn it, I know the mindfulness that's being used in schools now is getting great accolades. A lot of people yeah. are finding it it's super wonderful. helpful. Yeah. yeah. You know, so mindfulness is the tool, and it's the tool whether we're in our 80s, 90s, 20s, teens, 40s, 50s, 30s, it's it's the tool. And so young people, when they understand that option, 
there is an integration that is very helpful and hopeful. But the other thing that I think is at their um, at their feet to be challenged by every second is because of social media. There's such comparative mindset. So mm. we think about it in our lives. We all are, you know, aware of that person that might seem prettier, taller, more fun, you know, fun and and outgoing than we are. Imagine that times a million with what young people are up against with that comparative mindset. So if anything, I unpack that with young people and older people as soon as possible because the comparative mindset will set you back so fast. And as much time as you put into thinking about what someone else is doing is the exact time you could be utilizing for your own vision for your life. And young people... Don't get that because there's such a bombardment of other and who's doing what and how many likes and followers they may have. And that really means absolutely nothing. But you don't know that if you're in the thick of it. You know, that's really nice what you said about talking, just plain old talking to young people and asking them what they're about. I think they're so often asked, you know, what they do, what their plans are, these very kind of concrete uh, measures but to ask who you are and what you're about is a really, it's not a question I think that they're asked and to be able to think of themselves, uh, to think of themselves that way, just as a person, not as someone who needs to accomplish or have a five-year plan yeah. is a really nice, it's really nice to invite, invite someone to think along those lines. Yeah. I want to go back to Feel Good Naked for a second. So you, so this book was, was it 2001? Is that right? That's when it was published. You helped right. me with my proposal before that, but yes, published <laughs> in 01. It's such, um, it's such a strong, um, it's such a strong and powerful uh, statement and invitation and still so relevant. And I've been thinking, and I, I'd love to hear your perspective how are things now, do you think, out there for people in terms of body image? I, I, to me, I feel uh, like the body image issue has, has morphed a bit, but compare it to where you were when you came up with this idea, so it was in the late 90s, right? And you were in the thick of, uh, of teaching. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's... Now Sorry. where are people on, on their ability to feel good naked in every way? To, uh, where is self-acceptance? Where is confidence? Where, and let's be straight about it. It's really about women. I think it's much harder on women. So, you know, where are we sitting right now? Hmm. Well, I'll tell you this. The most interesting thing about the Feel Good Naked brand is when people think it really is look good naked. And it could not be more juxtaposed to that notion. It is Mm -hmm. not at all about look good naked. It is about feel good naked. And that has been one of my favorite parts about public speaking is to talk about what that really looks like, what that means, and, and what I intended with that title. So what I note now versus then is that there is a greater range of physical empowered acceptance. And when I had Dana Falsetti on my show, she was so inspiring to me to be in her 20s. And she's taken off with this yoga world and being quite a a large body who is 
so happy in her skin. And I think we are learning that to really feel good naked, to feel good in our skin has very little to do with what we look like. Now, a lot of people mm-hmm. don't get that. They're caught up in the Botox or the you know, plastic surgery. And, and I have no judgment about that if that's something somebody wants to do. But that's not going to ultimately take you to a place where you feel good in your body. And I'm hoping that as the world continues to evolve and these very young, brave people continue to put themselves out there physically as a spokesperson where there's not the emphasis on their color, hair, their bone structure. I think Lena Dunham's been an amazing voice for that. You know, there's a lot of powerful women that are speaking on behalf of what your options are. And if you're still thinking about how you look, you're not getting the point. And I think that's more relevant now and more prevalent now than it was when I started the journey of trying to, you know, begin that conversation. I hope that there are I've always thought I worked in magazines for a long time and I've and I always thought it starts it can it could start when magazines were the most powerful, you know, form of that type of entertainment. I guess digital stronger now that it needed to start there, that it needed to start with with magazines saying, no, we need size 8 for the models we're using, you know, and then the designers would need to create samples that were larger sizes. You know, when I traced it back, the fashion editors would tell me, no, you know, we don't have a choice. The only size, we don't have a choice to use models that are, we can't use normal size models. We need to use very, very thin models because the designers only make samples in this one size. So I thought, well, what if magazines refused? And and what if Vogue said, no, now our models are size 8 and 10. We need you to make we need you to make samples in that size, you know. I, I've been sort of obsessed with how this can change on a larger level and not just, uh, you know, there's a celebrity here and a celebrity there and a book there and a supportive podcast and a, maybe, uh, maybe a TV show where someone is featured. What's a bigger, what will make the shift happen in a really, really large way? Or do you feel like it's happening? Do you feel like we're going there, that people like Lena Dunham are leading the way and things are changing in a way that that can actually lock in? I do. I think so. And I think it's also about having the conversation as women. And also, notice how often you say to someone, anyone listening says to someone, oh, wow, you look so great. Oh, wow, you yeah. look so great. Oh, wow, you look so great. I um, I just find that so interesting because if your brain is still using a language that is disembodied, you want to really take notice of that and become aware of that because that's setting you back as the person who's saying, oh, you look so great. It, it just means exactly. nothing. Exactly. Yeah, it's so, and it's also, you know, it's also, I wish we could say, oh, you seem so happy, which I guess <laughs> we could say, but it's not a habit. I mean, it's also, there have been situations, you know, where somebody's sick and lost weight and it's just getting compliments, you know, Oof. because Oof. because they're thinner and that's what we are programmed to reinforce. 
And and that's where I see our culture going backwards is the diet industry, because I think when you start to alter what you're eating, how you're eating in an effort to lose weight, you are doing deep damage to your metabolism, your body clock, but you're also becoming a prisoner to food. And I think one of the greatest liberations is to learn how to eat and to eat with an understanding of what your body wants and needs and thrives on. And there's no part of that that includes the word diet. So I think the food industry is probably the greatest detriment to the empowered female embodied woman. Um, But I think we probably won't be able to change that because people become seduced by the call to action that is not really going to benefit them ultimately. What would you suggest? What would you tell someone you were coaching who is buying all the buying into the latest uh, the latest diet? Well, first of all, I think it's interesting to just inquire with people individually what it is they wh- where do you feel good when you eat? You know, what makes you feel good? What what makes you feel alive? What makes you feel sensual? What makes you feel energetic? Um, and when you really unpack that, it includes all of the food groups, which opens the understanding of allowing fats and carbohydrates and proteins and lots of water and maybe wine and, and dessert, but, but including options that are making you feel good. And if you tap in, again, if we can feel what it is we're feeling, the options are right there, but you have to first feel it. And so often I try to start with giving someone an understanding of having a relationship with food that is all about honoring the vessel they live in, which is their body. And if you're in a diet mentality, you're in a dysfunctional relationship with food. So we have to first get a healthy relationship with food started in order to have a good marriage. That's really interesting. And I, one of my questions here was, what did you have for breakfast? Because I think people want to know. <laughs> well, I, I, every single morning, clockwork, I have two glasses of water that is room temperature, and I have an apple. And the apple and the water are how I start my day. And then actually meditation, water, apple, and then coffee, and oatmeal, and fruit, and or egg, and toast. It's pretty simple, and it's pretty often that that's all it is. Those are the the general, yep, every morning. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I like that there's a routine to it. I'm a routine person, too. Um, What what was your breakfast this morning? My breakfast this morning was yogurt uh, with uh, apples and almonds, and then two hours later I had scrambled eggs and some avocado. I'm a big Mm. early-in-the-day eater. I could eat all my meals before noon, pretty much. Mm, Yummy. (laughs) Um, We talked a little bit about stress uh, recently, you and I, and dealing with stress or how we're processing stress in our lives these days um, and how that changes over time. And I wondered if you would talk a little bit about that. Well, one thing I did, and this, a lot of people judge me for this, which I don't care. Uh, I stopped completely reading the news. I I just 
unplugged from all all news and I find out the important things when I need to. It's not as if I don't know the trauma tragedy that is in the world right now. But I quit making it part of my daily news feed in my brain because I noted that every time I would watch something or hear it or read it, I felt contracted and tight. Did you notice a difference when you stopped? Totally. Looking? Totally. You did? Totally. Oh, my gosh. I feel like it is the greatest secret. And I also use the same tool with social media. So if I'm following someone on Instagram and I note that every time I see their posting, I feel contracted or stressed or tight or anxious, I don't follow them anymore. So I'm paying attention at a different level with what ignites stress within. And if I note it, I then address it and take it away, alter it, change it, rewire. So for me, it's been amazing to take away the things that I don't have to engage in that are stressful. Um, And then the other thing is really shifting relationships. I mean, it's hard, but I was aware of the fact that many times I was in social situations that weren't feeling fulfilling or at all integrated with my life now. So not continuing in those relationships that have expired or changed or no longer are honestly aligned with my intention for my life. And so I've ended a lot of relationships. That sounds really healthy. I think that um, how do you end a friendship, how do you end a relationship like that would be something that most people struggle with. I think... I think I think a lot of people can identify an unhealthy relationship and they don't know how to get out of it. And I think the best way is honestly and lovingly, even though the reaction and the response may be the opposite of that. So if I know that a relationship is no longer working in my life, and I'm sure of it, because sometimes it shifts and it ebbs and it flows. But if I know the the expiration date is up, um, I think the most beautiful way to do that is to let that person know that you don't feel like you can relate to each other in a way that is healthy for either of you anymore. And that what you have gained in relationship with them is valuable, but it no longer is working. And it isn't fulfilling, not only for for yourself, but for the other person. Because when it gets to the expiration point, it's operating on something that is not aligned with yourself. And it probably isn't for them either. So giving it language. And some people can't do that. Some people have to write an email or, you know, put it in writing through a letter or a note. Um, I like to say it and express it. And that generally is all you have to do. And it it's over. Or you could just not text back. Oh, <laughs> when, that's when they ask that, you to dinner. <laughs> and that would and do be that called, a few times and see that, if they get the hint. <laughs> which is ghosting, yes. Is that ghosting? No, or ghosting's when you've already been in relationship. Yeah, you've been in relationship. I don't know. I resist done. these labels to things that we've been doing forever. <laughs> but but right, that's the the chicken version of that. Yeah, um, that. Tell me what's next for you, what you're excited about coming up in your life. Um, But wait, one thing I have to say about that is that I think kindness for me, since I became um, much more spiritual in my practices, I believe that kindness, even when someone is brutal or awful or mean or um, 
conditional or judgmental. I really work on going into a compassionate, kind, direct response, which I think is much more universally hopeful in the scheme of something coming to an end. So although Mm. I was giggling with you about the text thing, I really believe in kindness. So even if someone has no idea what that is, I try to give it out as my go-to. So I just had to include that because kindness is No, that's really nice. That's really, uh, that's, and I don't know about you, but for for me to get to real kindness in a difficult situation, um, the best thing for me to do is to really step into the shoes of the other person, yeah. Because because you know there's there's kind words or there are things there are uh, sometimes kind words if they're chosen a certain way can be distancing and a um, little bit official. But if you're really thinking about that person and how th- what you're saying is going to hit them, um, empathy, it's empathy, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, then you know, then you know what to say. Then the kind words come in a natural way, not scripted, right? Yeah, exactly. And the and the empathy is 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 what I live and believe. Um, we're down to our. I just got our three minute warning because okay. I get to see that, and you don't. And what I'm up to now, what I'm doing now, what my mission is, is to help as many people as possible. To um, I'm considering another book. I want to do a uh, public performance that would be somewhat like a um, my dinner with Andre, but a group of people in that dinner table setting. I am working on public speaking through the internet, YouTube, and I am available through Skype to help people across the nation, the world. I love Skyping with people who want to coach and work with me who can't be in Portland, Oregon. And then I love working with people in Portland, Oregon as well. But I'm available for anyone out there as a coach, a confidence coach. And um, I also just... Uh, What's the website where people can find out more? Oh, that's good. LauraRedman.com. L-A-U-R-E-R-E-D-M-O-N-D. Com, and I love Instagram and that I'm at Feel Good Naked Radio on Instagram. That's fantastic. Will you tell us one of your favorite songs, like a song you listen to that makes you feel great before we sign off? One of the songs that I always get a lot out of is the Rolling Stones' Honky Tonk Woman. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I love that beat. That beat just makes me feel kind of alive and good and better. Um, And, Danny, I just want to thank you because, um, you know, you, you are a true friend that is always with me and in my heart and connected to me. And our friendship, speaking of friends, is one that never ever feels like it isn't current, present, vibrant. Um, And I'm just so grateful for that because you don't always know that that's going to happen with someone. And we have survived the decades that we've survived. And I know we'll go on till the end of time. So thank you for being here. Oh, thank Thank you for having me. I treasure you. 
I treasure you, and um, <laughs> I, I think the thing that one that when I created the show, I created the tagline, you complete you, and it's such a strong message, and you embody that, and I embody that, and I'm grateful to help other people get there because there's nothing better than really understanding that and knowing that. So thank you, Danny. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Laura Redmond. Please join us live again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, be you and feel great in your own skin.